Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. My name is Mitch and thank you for joining me on Lightmap. On Lightmap, we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media from creative teams around the world. It's a guide to interesting new gameplay experiences and every episode we get to meet new developers, artists, musicians, researchers and more. Our guest on Light Map this episode is Philip Buchanan from It's Anecdotal, the solo developer of Mini Matches. Thanks for joining me, Philip. Thanks for having me on. We can't wait to learn more about Mini Matches, so let's jump right in. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni DiGiovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying, sorry, you're mad. Solo-developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take-Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. You're listening to Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. So Mini Matches is the online multiplayer couch co-op game that features a collection of mini games for players to take part in. So in your own words, Philip, how would you describe uh, Mini Matches? Basically, every couch co-op game I played with my brother growing up mashed into one um, because I had so much fun playing these games, you know, side by side on the same keyboard or the same console. And uh, I just wanted to recreate that experience on steroids. Are there any particular experiences that you drew inspiration from? Ooh, uh, so if you play the game, you'll notice it jumps from basically every genre to every other genre. Uh, there's little bits of racing games. There's some of the classics. There's like a, a game where you, you shoot asteroids. There's a game where you like drop bombs to try and uh, clear bricks. There's bouncing balls. There's some soccer. There's some snooker. Uh, there are all these, basically all the games I could think of that I had fun playing with other people. Was it a challenge to recreate those experiences without blatantly copying them? I mean, obviously, you don't want copyright infringement and you don't want to do the same thing just because it's already been done. Um, but it's not really a problem because it's a four-player game and soccer is not really a four-player game. So obviously, recreating this in many matches uh, makes it absurd to begin with and it's a very different experience playing with four players. Nothing that goes with pretty much every experience in the game. Was there a particular minigame that you really wanted to include? Well, the very first one, the game, in fact, actually started out uh, flying around these little spaceships and uh, shooting asteroids and each other, picking up power-ups, and it was, it was kind of a game by itself. Um, but it wasn't quite enough to be a whole experience. It got you know, fairly stale fairly quickly, but it was you know, too good to throw away. So invariably, I started adding all these other modes to it, and then pared down the, the mechanics. So every player has one ability. You can use it once. Uh, it is fairly significant. You can interfere with the, the people you're playing with, and that's a bit of a riot. But um, yeah, it started off with that one mode and then grew from there. Was there anything that you thought of that you couldn't include? Oh, there's so many ideas that came out in brainstorming. Uh, every time I play with friends, they'll throw out new ideas. Um, a lot of them are just too much work. There's, there's kind of a framework that everything sits in. You, you have to have a certain amount of movement. You need to be able to use your power-up to 
you know, give yourself an advantage. Uh, a good example would be like the first person shooter game. I thought it would be really quite hilarious to go from all these 2D, fairly arcade based games and then suddenly drop people into like a first person shooter. But you can't reuse any of the existing code or any of the existing assets. Like it would be a completely separate mode that would require a huge amount of work to get working. And so I've tried to steer away from things that require me to start from scratch. And so everything I add and the plans I have to add new modes, they're all kind of piggybacking on what's already there on the core, the fact that you're moving around, interacting, using your abilities. Mini matches has a very tactile feel. It almost feels like you're moving around objects on a table. Um, how did you achieve that level of, of immersiveness? Um, wonderful physics simulation. It's, you, it's really nice in modern engines, especially Unity that's built in, where you can go in and you can very quickly tweak how things interact and how things feel. Uh, so for this, everything's scaled down. Uh, it's, as you say, it's very tactile. It's almost like playing through blocks on the table. And that's because physics-wise, it is. Like intuitively, it feels like you're playing with toys because everything's at that scale. Um, a lot of games, and I feel like a lot of people that start out playing with physics, you want everything to be big. You know, you, you make a spaceship, you make a spaceship site, you make an asteroid, you make an asteroid site. But these interact in very different ways to do like a block that's this big. Lego blocks are big. Um, so everything was tuned with this feeling of like the small toy-sized objects. Uh, and then adding on top really good interaction sounds. Uh, everything is actually synced to the music, which makes it feel much more um, interactive in some ways. You get this feedback that kind of goes into this whole feeling synthesis of the game. You're, you're playing the game, but you're making the soundtrack at the same time. So all of this kind of comes together to give it a tactile, real-world platform. Can you tell me a bit more about that sound design? Uh, did you do that as well, or did you have to get someone to help you out? So it's the one thing I can't do myself. Um, I'm a terrible instrumentalist, and I don't compose. So I worked with uh, Chell Wong, who is an amazing musician, as you can tell. We started off with this idea that we wanted to have the game music build itself as you play. So it starts off with these very small, coarse, like background loops, almost like an ambiance, and then the first time you do something in the mode, you shoot, you bump into something, you interact, that sort of kicks off another couple of layers, and it builds on top of those. Um, every sound in the game is sent to the music. So shooting, moving, uh, the player who starts winning has a special uh, like instrumental section. So every character with every special ability has its own representation of the music. And if you're winning, yours plays. Um, so you can kind of get this acoustic feel for who's winning even if you're not looking at Can you tell me a bit more about those special abilities? Because usually in party games like this, everyone kind of gets the same character and they all could do the exact same thing and the competition comes from the particular, just your understanding of the mechanic. Yeah, so one of the I don't typically play many games it's odd as a game developer not playing that many games, but one that I uh, that, is, that is not odd by the way, that's the <laughs> one thing we found with a lot of developers is developers don't get the chance to play a lot of games, even though they might like to. There's no time, and I don't want to be sitting in front of the computer after I've spent all day sitting in front of the computer. Um, but I do occasionally play Dota, and it's got this huge deck of asymmetry. Every character is different. Every character has a different ability. Um, and it's something that you see some of these big AAA games doing now. Um, Overwatch has a similar sort of thing going on. But indie games typically don't. 
difficult to do. It's really hard to balance. Um, but I think it adds a really special feel to the game where everyone can do something different. And you have to come up with strategies that are different for everyone you play against. And so the abilities in the game, so for example, one of them freezes time for everyone else except for you. It gives you five seconds or so to move around freely. And you think this would be an absolute game changer. Like you would just win the mode every time. Uh, and that's what I thought when I started building it. I, I threw these in for fun, but assuming it's going to be really badly broken. Like whoever uses their ability first to win, the magician just like shuffles everything around to like reset. So it breaks up everyone else's tactics. There's uh, a ghost that can basically become invincible for quite a long time, uh, but you can't interact with the level while you're doing it. Uh, it turns out that all of these have their moments to shine and have their moments that are just the, the worst time in the world to use them or will lose you the match. Uh, and a lot of them will interact with each other. So I can freeze time. And it gives me a boost. But as soon as that's finished and someone else is, is able to move, they can use their ability to mess up the plan I've just started putting in place. So having this asymmetry between characters was a really fundamental part of making the game interesting and giving it a bit more depth. Balancing mechanics is, if you ask almost any game developer making anything PvP related, balancing mechanics is one of the hardest and most time consuming things to do. How did you approach that problem as a solo developer? So I think games are difficult to make as a solo developer. My first game, 39 Days to Mars, was a two player cooperative story based game. Uh, this one, obviously, a four player multiplayer game. I play test them heaps, sometimes with friends, sometimes with my partner, but one of the, the core sort of gameplay testing routines I had was a monthly open to the public playtesting group that we ran in Montreal, where I was based when I started this project. And we would probably play for two or three, maybe four hours, uh, one evening a week. People would come in who were just interested in games, families and kids and like, students who wanted to get into games. Uh, and I would take Screeds and screeds and screeds of notes. Tweak everything in the next month, try it all out, and uh, just tweak things over time. What was that experience like developing in Montreal? That's oh, great. There's a, there's a huge community of developers, or a huge community of game developers in general. It's one of the largest in the world. And uh, there are lots of meetups, there are lots of people around that have been through the same experience or can help you out with stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a very lively city for the game developers. How do you compare that to now coming back to New Zealand and, and, and working there? What, what are some of the pros, what, what are the strengths and some of the challenges of the New Zealand game industry? Because a lot of people don't really realize that the, of, the, of, of the intricacies of the New Zealand game industry. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because when I left, there wasn't really a games industry. There were a couple of companies uh, who were you know, doing very well on the global scene, quite large, but they were effectively paving their own way. There was, there was no uh, community, game development community. Uh, that was 10 years ago. But then I came back, and now there is a game development community. There are so many new companies. There are so many indies starting out doing really cool things, getting funding. Uh, Christchurch in particular has a, a monthly game development meetup. Um, there's, there's really a lot of cool things happening. So coming back, it, obviously it's not as big as Montreal, but it feels like 
is this little bubble of, of game development that's growing, and that's that's exciting to come back at this point mm-hmm. and see that it's kicking off and be able to be part of it. Can you tell me a bit about your previous game, Thirty Nine Days to Mars, and how that has influenced some of your gameplay and development on uh, mini matches? Yes. So as a background, Thirty Nine Days to Mars is a two-player cooperative puzzle adventure game. So you play these two British space explorers who decide after a cup of tea they want to go and visit Mars. So they build this ridiculously janky spaceship out of bathtubs and string and send off to Mars. And things go wrong, everything falls apart. Uh, you have to go and fetch more coal and battle space monsters and uh, it's very ridiculous. But it has this element of like strange physicality. So a lot of the problems you solve, or a lot of the things that go wrong, uh, you interact with by, by moving objects on the screen with these little hands. Uh, things bump into each other, you'll spill the, the milk bottle when you're trying to make a cup of tea, or like try and spread jam on stones, and you're doing some gardening in the spaceship garden. Um, all these things kind of gave me a good appreciation for what works and what doesn't when it comes to physics-based games. And so I think diving into mini-matches, I kind of had this baseline knowing how things should feel or how things could go badly wrong. Um, we had to have sort of programmatic overrides. So physics is great as a baseline, but it's terrible as a, as a mechanic. So you need to impose these rules. Sometimes it's goals, but oftentimes it's saying, no, well, actually, you can't tip this thing over. That's just you know, going to be frustrating. It's not going to be fun. So, so having physics with these rules on top and knowing how that worked was a really good kickstart for me. Can you tell me about uh, your time at Square Enix working on Lara Croft Go and uh, Deus Ex Go and, and other projects like that? Can you tell me a bit more what you learned there? What have you brought from that experience to your solo career? Absolutely. And it was uh, really an excellent time and uh, amazing projects to work on. So I joined uh, just after Hitman Go had launched. And uh, we were prototyping Lara Croft Go. Started with, effectively with gray boxing and puzzle mechanics. I was in charge of uh, some of the gameplay, but mostly graphics programming. That's my background. So we were doing huge numbers of experiments of how this should look and how this should feel. And it was a game that drew, obviously, from the AAA side of things, uh, the huge Lara Croft Tomb Raider franchise. But at the same time, it was going on to mobile. And we didn't want to make it, uh, for lack of a better word, like a cartoon game, often mobile games, because of the graphics restrictions, you tear them down and you make them you know, 2D, you make them quite simple and easy to read because people are going to be playing them outside in the sunlight and you can't really have norms. But we felt like it didn't work with Lara Croft Go, so there was a huge amount of experiment. How do we make things feel the way we want in these very different environments? Uh, tablets and mobile phones and later they came to PC as well. So um, I learned a lot about how to prototype and obviously a lot about working in small teams. There were uh, from memory about 8 to 12 of us depending on the stage of the project uh, and for a game you know, that well known, it's quite a small team. So we really got to have a lot of control over how the game turned out mm. and that was you know, really the foundation for working on 39 Days to Mars and then being able to know what 
I felt confident doing and what worked, and then where I needed to go and pick the brains of other indie developers or other colleagues to try and figure out you know, what I needed help for. What prompted the decision to move into solo developing and move back to New Zealand? So solo development is something I always wanted to do. It's obviously very hard to do it full-time. There's a lot of competition out there. Um, but I've been working on being those Mars for four years. started in 2011, I think, and kick-started it. And then I moved to Montreal and started working full-time, and I just picked away at this in my spare time, a day here and a day there. Uh, and it got to the point where it was coming up to you know, being finished. And I had to make a decision because launching a movie game part-time is entirely possible if you just want to get it out, but it's really hard to do by yourself in your spare time because the week, week or two leading up to launch and the week or two after launch are effectively you know, very much full-time, more than full-time, dealing with everything. And I could have taken a sabbatical, I could have taken a holiday, but I really wanted to just focus on the Landers Mars. So I left Square Enix, which was a very difficult decision. Uh, spent another month polishing up the Landers Mars and then launched it. And very luckily for me, it did well. What was it like seeing the game and people's reactions to your, your work, your personal work? Because on... on with a with a solo game, that's you. That's you out there. Yeah, well, I heard someone mention that uh, when you're reading reviews of game, you remember the one in ten or the one in hundred bad ones, and you don't remember the good ones. And to a point, that's true. Uh, there are lots of great reviews, lots of people having great amount of fun, but there's you know there was also a frantic amount of bug fixing, uh, things that you know a hundred playthroughs didn't find. That when there's a thousand people. Or, 2,000 people playing it uh, pops up. So the first week was just this, this chaos of responding to comments, queries, fixing bugs, reading reviews, and being like, oh, this is great. There's people playing the game, having great fun. It's going the way that I wanted it to go, getting these amazing feelings out of it. Uh, and then the next person you know, plays five hours and goes, game sucks, too short. And you're like, oh. <laughs> And there's, there's often, you know, pe- people are really constructive with their feedback when they're positive, uh, and the negative feedback is often it's, it's bad, uh, which is a really a terrible thing to internalize because there's no, there's nothing to approve of. There's nothing, but that, unfortunately, that's the reality of reviews um, on, on games. But uh, on the whole, it was such an excellent experience. You launch the game. You see people playing it and having a great time and then they're telling you about it and people stream it and you can watch people having fun playing the game. Uh, it's really it's shot a real high for quite a long time. When do you feel that it's time to move on from a project? Because 39 Days to Pass is obviously something that you care a great deal about. But when, when, when all the bug fixing is, how do you know when all the bug fixing is done and it's time to move on? Because surely you can't bug fix and make another game as a solo developer. No, you can't. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a tricky question, and it's one that I'm still kind of struggling with. 39 Days to Mars was the project that never died, um, and it was tough near the end because it's exciting making a game. You do your development, you put it together, you launch it, on my case, on Steam, and then 
It did okay at the launch. It didn't do very well. It sold okay. The reviews were okay. Um, so I fixed the bugs. And then I added more content because that was one of the major problems. So I spent six months doubling the length of the game. Uh, that helped. And then I bought it for consoles. So I spent months with my Xbox board and then months on the Nintendo Switch board and then months on the PlayStation board. And they all did pretty well. And then we localized it into Japanese and we released it in Japan on the Xbox and the Switch and the PlayStation. And then I followed the with a Chinese publisher, so we localized it into Chinese and we released it in mainland China. And suddenly three years have passed since I launched the game, launched the game and I'm still working on it full time. And just a little bit burnt out on it. It's still exciting because you're watching it, people are playing it, uh, it's sustaining my career. But uh, I've been working on it more or less nonstop for seven years, and it's a lot. So the, the question is, like, when does that tail off? And luckily it does. You know, you get to a point where the bugs are all fixed, and all the platforms have been launched on, uh, and the game kind of, you know, it sticks along by itself. And there's a bit of breathing room to start working on new ideas, new projects. And luckily for me, that's when uh, I participated in Student, which is a, a games incubator in Sweden. So effectively, it's uh, the group of developers all go off into the forest for six weeks and turn off the rest of the world and just work on their projects. So most people had projects they, they wanted uh, to work on, certain goals they were trying to achieve. And mine was very much that I had an early prototype or two and they wanted to figure out what I was doing next. Uh, and that felt at a really opportune time. So I ramped off 39 Days to Mars, worked on a bunch of new projects and many matches. And the next project after that are both uh, games that came out of Sweden. Can you, can you go into a little bit more depth about what that, uh, what that program is? Because I've always heard about game jams, like a train jam, for example, in Australia, where um, people jump on a train and they, and they go between cities and develop games. Can you tell me a bit more just about the nuance of that and why those kind of events are important? Absolutely. So I think there's a, a difference where I would differentiate uh, game jams or shorter game jams from sort of accelerators, incubators, or longer game jams where the purpose is to full-time work on a specific project that is going to go further. So I believe that train jams more than jam. You, you turn up with nothing, you try and make something in three days. Uh, the global game jam or London Bear. These ones, you start with nothing, and the goal is to have a complete little experience finished in three days, which is valuable. And a lot of games do come out of game jams. But I think one of the problems is it stops you exploring some of the bigger ideas that you can't actually do in two days. Mini matches is a good example. You can't prototype this game in two days because it's effectively 10 games or 20 games in one. Mm-hmm. So, Stuvid, which is six weeks long, there's obviously uh, something that's very difficult to organize normally, you know, it's incredibly lucky to be part of it. But it gives you the time to explore a bit more in depth where you're both happy. Or for the people that were working on their projects full time, really focus on one specific difficult feature that they need to overcome. This is a question I like to ask, um, especially solo developers. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? You wake up, where do you go from there? 
Ooh, uh, changes. I still haven't quite found the, the, the balance that works for me. Uh, sometimes I slice my week up vertically, and Mondays I'll wake up and do administration tasks. I will um, you know, deal with all the invoices and the incoming payments from various platforms. They have to be collated, they have to be accountants. I have to respond to all the requests for keys. Huge number of people uh, want fresh reviews of the game. 95% of them are just trying to turn around and sell your key. Uh, so there's a huge amount of work going in to make sure that you're giving the keys to the right people that are going to help you uh, and not people that don't sell it. There's obviously all the studio overhead that doesn't take that much time, but needs a wee bit of maintenance. Making sure my backups are all running, making sure my you know, gets and repositories are all set up correctly, and occasionally when they break, it's those installing new versions of all the software. Just the things I never thought would take up so much time, and they take up so much time. So that's usually one of my days. Uh, another of my days will be um, as kind of like a boring bug fix day. I'll assign myself, usually somewhere in midweek, um, to really close off the rest of the world and do something that I don't particularly want to do, but it's to be done. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time, it depends on the project. I'll have a task list and I'll pick the one that feels the most interesting to me because I can. One of the huge advantages of being a solo dev is that there's all sorts of different things to do and maybe one day I'll really want to do some art and another day I feel like doing something technical and programming or I'll sit down with a pen and paper and I'm playing out some more game systems. Uh, and there's no uh, the really cool thing about being you know, independent developer is that there's no one thing to do all the time. I want to talk to you about a particular day uh, that you had uh, last year where you spoke at Play by Play in 2021. What was that experience like? Oh, that was great fun. Uh, so I talked about um, how I developed the same game for seven years and how it was never-ending. Uh, it was kind of a post-mortem. And uh, it, was, it was really nice to be able to uh, prepare that, actually sitting down before I did the speech and looking through all the statistics of my, my project. How long did I actually spend on it? Where did all the time go? Uh, and that's when it really I kind of came together that the time you spend as a solid developer on the actual development, coding and the outlook, is quite small compared to the time you spend doing the administration, doing the overhead, doing the planning, doing the porting, and dealing with localization voice actors and bug reports and putting the Steam page up and doing the graphics for it and editing trailers. Uh, so once I'd started putting all this together, I realized it's going to be a really interesting subject to talk about. And I still think it's absolutely fascinating how game development, when you talk about it, often people are like, oh, it's like making 3D models and it's programming a game. But that's really only thing it's I think that that is a great place to end uh, this episode. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Philip. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That was Philip Buchanan, uh, the creator of Mini Matches, and we did end up talking a lot about his previous game, 39 Days to Mars. Um, he's from It's Anecdotal. He's a solo developer, and you can find out more information on all his work by heading it to www.itsanecdotal.com or hitting up Philip Buchanan at Philip Buchanan on 
uh, on Twitter and uh, at It's Anecdotal on Twitter as well. Um, Philip, thank you so much for being part of Lightmap and sharing your project with us. Thank you very much. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, Adam Christou, and uh, my name is Mitch Lowe. I am the senior producer, and Gianni Di Giovanni is our executive producer. Uh, thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. You can find links to everything we talked about on our website, which is sifter.com.au, uh, to read more about the games and guests we featured. And uh, why not join the Sifter community? It's a Discord server. It's very chilled. We like to share our creative work. It's sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. Uh, to get in there, that's sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. We have people sharing all sorts of things. Their Warhammer painting, their art, their 3D printing uh cosplay things like that it's very cool uh and if you can please share the show it's the number one free thing you can do to support us word of mouth is very important to indie podcasts like this one so let your friends know if you reckon they'll enjoy it and send the link and make it easy them easy for them to take part in the show and we'll love you forever for it that's all for now thank you very much for joining us philip and uh thank you very much everyone for listening we'll see you on the next episode of light map Goodbye. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and, which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates. And you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you can build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.